A learner should be excited about the possibility of learning a new wrinkle, finding a new perspective. Scriptures I read use phrases like the renewing of your mind. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to The Dismantle, a show for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. Each week we attempt to dismantle or take apart an issue that has the potential to be problematic in the church by dialoguing with a guest who either has insight or experience with the subject. Now, if you've heard before on the show, we won't always agree, but we won't argue. Our goal is to understand and gain perspective by sharing our views in a way that builds bridges and not barriers. This week, our guest is Drew McCulley. Drew is the Director of Pre-AP Social Studies Instruction for the College Board. He is an avid lover of history, film, and art. And he and his wife and daughter live in Central Jersey. Drew, welcome to The Dismantle. Thank you so much, Joey. Excited to be here. I'm glad you're on, man. It's going to be a very interesting conversation, I'm sure. Although, you know, you have that intro, um, you promised no arguments. I didn't promise any lack of arguments. Well, I won't argue. Oh, (laughs) This is going to be one-sided. Awesome. It's fantastic. I'll, I'll have one hand behind my back. <laughs> so, Drew, how did you get introduced to church, to faith? What's your background with spiritual stuff? Yeah, I um, didn't have a second of my life without church because my dad is a pastor. Okay. Um, and so that was always very interesting growing up. Uh, I think my dad had really great uh, boundaries in trying to make sure that uh, that aspect of things growing up was as normal as it could be and um but it did do you know i was my joke is you know, it does strange things for your faith when the, you know the person who's trying to help you figure out the mysteries of the cosmos an hour before the sermon you're helping him find the mysteries of where he left his car keys um <laughs> but uh but yeah my dad is you know he's a family counselor still a minister um so you know, it's interesting, like, as far as having a very personal faith of sorts, uh, the gospel was facts, just like, you know, of course, George Washington crossed the Delaware, of course, everything you were like, it never wasn't, you yeah. know, and so the electricity of it, the meaning of it, you know, for those of us who were raised in the church, you know, oftentimes the gospel was old news before it was good news. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, over my life, uh, you know, I'm still practicing and there's certain things that my father and I agree on. Uh, there's some, you know, theological, uh, kinks that I, and, and twists and turns I've endeavored upon. Um, but you know, he and I respect each other. He's a wonderful giving and loving human being. Um, and he was very also very open about when I got to be a teenager um, that I could go explore other churches or um, I don't know if he was ever open to just not going to church, but um, you know, he, he wanted me to find my way. And I think that has been a great uh, influence on my life. So always in the church still in the church in a capacity. And uh, I think that answers the question. Yeah, definitely. And and I think that's really cool to be able to have uh, not only the pastor of your church, but also your dad be able to, to tell you, hey, this is a personal thing and it's going to have to be your own and gave you the freedom to do that. That's really cool. Totally did. 
totally did. I mean, he is not a, um, and just in general, a pushy person. I, I think, um, I mean, one example of how much trust he placed in us and how well we, we repaid him. Um, I went to school 13 hours away and he, you know, said, wherever you want to go to college, go to college. And then my sister uh, went 13 hours south in a completely different direction. So we just broke their hearts and were only home on Thanksgiving. <laughs> and, you know, races to be pretty uh, independent, um, seeking, journeying, uh, explorer types. And uh, we, we took them up on it. Well, thanks for sharing that, Drew. Uh, today's topic on the dismantle is under the umbrella of education. Uh, now, Drew, as we mentioned, you've been active within the education field for uh, many years now. What interested you in the education system? Um, the system? Uh, not much. Uh, really, I got into teaching because I couldn't think of anything else I was going to be much good at. Uh, I was a very inconsistent student. Uh, history was a few uh, subjects that I always get high marks on. I was always that type of student that if I wasn't immediately interested um it was difficult for me to uh you know sift through the details and, and get you know top top marks i mean i did fine as a student but you know there was lots of thought when i went to college what am i actually good enough at and um you know, I, I am jealous of how t students how people nowadays have all of these measuring tools and interest inventories and all that sort of stuff to maybe identify what they might like to do, but I kind of had to stumble into it. I was going to be a communications major um, and history major first, and I did a couple of internships in graphic design and marketing, and really, how did I get into be teaching? I realized I was going to hate marketing. Mm. Um, so uh, I went to an old dream of, of teaching. When I first bandied around the idea of maybe being a teacher, um, everybody said you had to be a good football coach or something like that, because you, for those who don't know, you know, as a, if you own a chemistry degree, you can do lots of things that are very lucrative that aren't in teaching. Uh, same thing with mathematics and a lot of other things. If you got a history degree, uh, you know, whenever I went to a job fair, there was always like 50 of us for every like, you know, Spanish teacher or something like that. So you have to have something to, you know, uh, separate yourself from the pack. Mm. And they, I was always recommended not to do uh, teaching. Uh, by the time I realized I wasn't going to do the major I just finished, um, they said, no, there's a lot of people retiring. You should, you should think about it. So um, I was always drawn to the idea of trying to make a difference. I loved history as a discipline. Um, I don't have a lovey-dovey story to share about, like, you know, was there a champion teacher that inspired you? Honestly, I started my teaching career trying to just be the teacher I wished I had. Not that I had all bad teachers, but I definitely made a long list of I will never do such and such because mm. I remember how unfair that was. What a waste of time that was for me as a student. And so, yeah, I got into uh, teaching really, I think my junior year started working for my teaching degree. And it ended up being something that I, I really did enjoy and ended up being pretty, pretty, pretty good at, seemed to connect with kids. Um, so really, you know, what drew me to it made, you know, I was definitely not one of those kids that had this dream or uh, had ambitions and designs. I was kind of bouncing around 
aimlessly trying to figure out what it was I would like to do and teaching seemed to be the least worst idea I had by the time I finished college. Um, have you worked in secular and Christian education? Yeah, so I had a 13-year teaching career before my current job at the college board. I had two and a half years at a small Christian school. I also taught in a rural New Jersey district and a uh, relatively affluent suburban New Jersey district. So I've kind of had, even within one state, a couple of interesting perspectives that have helped my current work. So yeah, mostly in secular education, but I did have a two and a half year uh, stint in a small Christian high school. Drew, a big debate now is the Second Amendment and how its vernacular about gun rights actually apply to a, a weapon that's no longer utilized. It's an outdated phraseology with an introduction of a semi-automatic weapon. And I feel education similarly has a one-size-fits-all application sometimes. Um, some might even call it an outdated route uh, that we still apply to our education system today. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that that's certainly true. Um, you know, it might not go back as far as the Constitution and the Second Amendment, but I think the way we structure our classrooms today are still the same as they were around the progressive era, around the 19-teens or even earlier. Maybe we have replaced the chalkboard with a PowerPoint screen. We still have a bunch of desks, sometimes just as heavy as they were you know, 30 years ago and hard to move around, all aimed at where the place we're all supposed to stare at, chalkboard, teacher, the visual. And uh, the amount of time we spend in class, the bells, the rotations, you could find that pretty much already in place over a century ago. And it is interesting to even look at, what I'm always fascinated by is the, the era of education even before that, where you did have the schoolhouse. And you know, sometimes one of the buzzwords these days is dif differentiation. Like, you know, how do you um, address the needs of so many kids? And it is interesting, like, you know, when you look at the schoolhouse, you know, kids just had to kind of figure out where they were with multiple age levels. And there was lots of the one or two teachers could have lots of one-on-one -on -one time. There's lots of writing, um, you know, lots of, you know, we overworked these poor, like, you know, school marms on the frontier, wherever, to death. You know, yeah. they were not allowed to have families, and they really were expected to be almost a, a non-saint sort of existence to work, you know, 80 hours to meet the needs of all these students. Um, but it, it's interesting that, you know, once we started deciding it really was going to be education for all, um, education in a much more urbanized society. Uh, it seemed to be let's cram as many kids in to hear the you know the same lecture, and yeah, our physical buildings have not changed that much. The schedule, the structures, they're all there with pretty much cosmetic updates. You get some teachers that are starting to get into you know in the eighties. There was a lot of emphasis on group work, um, but group work to do what? I think that was the biggest flaw of that. Mm. Here it's like, well, we should be working in groups and we're going to present in groups. And instead of a lecture, you don't remember, it was a group presentation that was actually wrong because the kids wrote it and, um, you know, that sort of <laughs> thing. Um, so we are definitely 
in an era both on the secondary, elementary, and even higher ed level that I think everybody feels is ripe for an update, is ripe for disruption, because the way everything flows is not meeting necessarily the needs of what students need to be learning in the classroom right now. I've heard this phrase, and, and probably many of our listeners have as well, that there's kind of two schools of thought when it comes to teaching. There's the uh, sage on the stage, and then there's the guide on the side. The the former refers to a classic lecture, whereas uh, the latter is more about relationships that bring forth discovery. Um even the way that I worded it sounds slanted, uh, but is there merit to both styles of education? Well, I, I think there's, there's time and place for just about any sort of educational delivery or any sort of, yeah, I, as much as I, I think direct instruction or lecture for 45 or 55 minutes straight every day of the year is not going to be a great way to prepare a student for the challenges they're going to face personally and professionally. Um, that is not to say that you know, direct instruction is bad in and of itself. There are certain topics I can think of as a historian. There's several topics that I would want to walk a student through myself to try to ground them and, and orient them rather than uh, just, you know, what was the other one guide on the side? Um, I, I do think, you know, even guide on the side um, is interesting because, you know, on the side, yeah, you might be on the sidelines that you're not in front of everybody. I think one of the things that a lot of people don't see is in order to be a guide, an effective guide on the side, um, it's, it's really hard to do well. You really need to know your stuff. And I think it's, it's really difficult for the teacher because if you really know your stuff and you are the sage on stage you get to be on stage you get to share everybody what you know showing what you know by tailoring the activity and setting it up for moments where you can step aside and let the kid make the important um light bulb moment discovery on their own actually takes a great deal of expertise and content knowledge and practical knowledge so I, you know, I think each one has their merits. Uh, I would agree that I have a similar slant that there probably should be at the very least an equal mix of both. But uh, I think probably all of us have known and been in circumstances, not just in a teaching classroom, but, you know, elsewhere, a church, work environment, whatever, where um, direct instruction has been great and direct instruction has been horrible. I think we've all been in uh, times where, well, this, you guys figure it out, and I'll just be over here. I'm the facilitator. And things that were awesome experiences and ones that were just terrible. So, I mean, these are all techniques. These are all tools. We talk a great deal in education. What's very hot lately is understanding by design. And somebody wrote a whole book with just basically begin with the end in mind. Focus on well, what do you actually want the outcomes to be? What do you want kids to actually do by the end of your time? What do you want kids to really remember? like long-term, you know, they sometimes use the term enduring understandings. Like what do you honestly want a kid that you can ask them 10 years from now? And it can't be many things, you know, uh, if you really had to boil it down to what are the 10 things you want a kid to actually be able to completely remember 10 years from now, what would you want those 10 things to be? And that, that forces 
prioritization. So I think all of these techniques can be used effectively. Oftentimes, expertise on the content matter, expertise on pedagogy, you know, fancy word for you, just your, your overall understanding of educational trends, um, and even just specific goals. You know, I don't think we've really answered, what is school for? What's public school for? Uh, is it to get kids in the work environment? Well, then why do we have completely non-work hours with all this controlled stuff? Is it just to keep them off the streets? Is it to make them moral individuals? We don't really have a mission statement for what it is. And I think just in general, education suffers from a lack of clear goals, a lack of clear vision. And that can undermine things much worse than the individual classroom type or method of delivery. Hmm. It's brilliant. Blowing my mind. Well, I mean, I can I can talk about the the problem. I I, do I have the answer for all that? No. Right. Right. And I (laughs) think poke holes and just hey, see all these problems. And I think that's a lot of uh, people within the institution is that they see the problem, but a solution is probably a little more difficult of a conversation. Sure. Um, going back to something you said, you mentioned church within the different styles of education. And, and this uh, goes back to a conversation you and I had over lunch uh, that you completely you stopped me from eating my sandwich as I was thinking about what you said. But um, we have this outdated form of education within the church and we call them sermons. Uh, now, while I admire the system and have a great ad- admiration and gratitude for uh, the education I received in the church, I think we've adopted this antiquated version of information dispersion as well. Uh, talk to me a little bit about um, that style of delivering information that, that mirrors the educational system. Well, I think it's interesting that if you look at church history, so much of how the churches have been set up historically mimic very much the, the art forms of that time. And, and obviously it goes both ways. I certainly would want that it's the church mimicking art, arts mimicking church. But you think about the pulpit, um, it's very much it's theater, you know, in a lot of ways. And now I think we're kind of updating uh, the sermons based upon entertainment forms. But... You know, one of the, the phrases I like, people remember, it might be a little sing-songy, but you know, so much of what we do in education right now is we have kids be renters of knowledge. They lease knowledge. They, um, they hear, hear the content delivery for what they need to know for the test. Tell me what's on the test. Boy, you know, how many teachers out there, they had a dime for every time. Was this on the test? What's on the test? And they sit on that knowledge just long enough to if I see this phrase, pick this multiple choice item that's associated with it, and then it's gone, you know, a week later. That's how I got my bachelor's degree. Yeah, well, there you go. (laughs) Um, And and the fact is, that's nothing new. You know, if you go to um, a wise man named Paul Simon, I think wrote in the 1970s, when I look back at all the crap I learned in high school, it's it's amazing I can think at all. Um, You know, we don't retain much of it. We don't we release the knowledge. We rent the knowledge. Uh, I'm really interested in solutions about how we create knowledge ownership, you know, owning the knowledge. And that does get back to the, like, the what understandings endure over time. 
And I do think when it comes to sermons, and, and it's interesting, if you believe in Christian doctrine, um, last time I checked, there's a role for the Holy Spirit, and there's even somewhere in the good book that says that only the Spirit convicts hearts and minds. And I've worked with lots of pastors. I can think of somebody who was doing slides for uh, 15 years ago, and very dynamic speaker, very entertaining. And the slides were visually interesting. But the sermon would stretch on to 45 minutes, running long 55 minutes, hours were not unheard of. And you'd look through, like I'd look through the structure of the sermon, and I'd see, okay, you got a clever story. Okay, you got another clever illustration. You have your third really clever, fourth, fifth, sixth. A, do you expect them to remember this all? B, it just seemed, it seemed like a lack of trust, lack of like, you know, where, if you really believe in the Holy Spirit, where, where is it in this sermon? You know, um, because it seems like lots of pastors, and listen, I've done a sermon a handful of times. I mean, obviously, it's enormous responsibility. We always want to empathize with our pastors. But I do think um, there's a great deal of emphasis of, boy, I just I got to say the right thing so that when you leave the room, you really get it. And I do think that process leaves out discovery. We all know the things we learned. Some of our best childhood memories was when we discovered, ah, I remember when I discovered how to do that. How to ride the bike, how to play the sure. instrument, how, you know, all of that. I mean, I was discussing some of my work with my uncle just a couple of months ago. He goes, you know, what's funny that you mentioned some of the examples, uh, you know, some of the things I was showing him. He's like, I just remember one time looking at a map and suddenly it hit me. I was just messing around with the atlas. All these cities seem to be on rivers or on the water. And I remember I was like, well, whatever age he was, and that got me thinking. And I remember that discovery forever. Hmm. Um, so I, I do think it's interesting that when you are trying to get out of a strict content delivery model, it's scary because there's lots of unknowns and tangibles. There's lots of crazy places it could go. You're kind of you know, trusting uh, your listener and your audience. But yeah, I think there's got to be some room for discovery. I, I can't remember the last sermon I've been in where um, they put a verse on screen and then they say, you know what, talk with your neighbor and tell them what you notice about this verse first, mm. you know, or something like that. Where people are like entering into things, or like what what word choice, or what what do you notice? Oh, boy, uh, Saint Paul keeps using this word over and over again. It must be important, you know, things like that. Um, there's no give and take. It's just deliver, deliver, deliver. I'm gonna assume when I get yelled amens back that you're liking what I'm delivering, right? And you know what? That gets me excited. I'm going to deliver more of that, hmm. you know? Um, and it is, it's delivery. Um, I think what is fascinating for 
anybody, a Christian, a secular person, is Jesus is really frustratingly to lots of his audience members and his disciples that give up everything to follow him. He is incredibly nonlinear. He is incredibly, and the moral of the story is, guys, he, Jesus very rarely cuts to the chase and yeah. just says, here is the point. You should do this. Here are the three bullet points for living. Jesus oftentimes leaves, leaves his audience hanging. Jesus oftentimes says, this is a parable and it's an illustration of something. What is it an illustration of? I want you to mull that over and figure it out. He who has ears to hear. Let him he hear. Has, right. Are you listening? Right. And there's so many times where, uh, you know, within the Gospels, the disciples come back and they go, what the hell were you talking about? Yeah, yeah. You know, Can we get cliff notes? Can you just cut to the chase? If the disciples said, what the and hell were you talking about? That would have been great. That but. would have been very interesting. <laughs> um, but, you know, does he... Does he ever, sometimes I think he levels with them. I think actually it's interesting if, if I recall, I, I think there's a couple of times where he's like, okay, I am about to die very soon. I do need to cut to the chase on some of these. Right. You know, just in case I was misunderstood. It's but pretty like, clear there. But most oftentimes he does not make it easy on them. He does allow, you know, there's a phrase we like at our work of productive struggle. He, he leaves room for lots of productive struggle instead of just saying, Here's the answer. Copy it down and do it. And, uh, you know, I oftentimes joke these sort of learning I'm interested in. When does just memorizing the right sequence of words ever really work in just about any real life situation? I think you and I were talking one time, you know, it's like, let's try this with our spouse sometime. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. Han, you just tell me the exact script of anytime you say this, I should say these five words and that'll just solve everything. Right. No, it's got to be something, that, a larger point that's got to be internalized. And you kind of have to figure out what that actually means, what your action steps are, what that is going to change about your behavior. That is something that, that's all on your side of the fence. And Jesus leaves a lot of things on the disciples, listeners, whoever's reading it now on their side of the fence. And it is utterly unlike the sermons I walk in that tell you exactly what you should be walking out with. Mm. It's a marked contrast. Let me ask you a follow-up question on that. If you were to do that within a history class, you might come to the wrong answer. You know, if you had asked a question and there was a, a bit of discovery that you wanted your students to go through, you might come to the wrong answer. How does that then apply to a spiritual realm? Well, I would start by answering why is it bad if the history student comes to the wrong answer? Yes, the, the teacher's there. The sage is off stage, but they're on the side to jump in at right moments. And I think a good teacher knows when to say, you know what, uh, that's a really good educated guess. Uh, and maybe don't just guess on the answer. Tell me, tell me why you had that answer and you back it up with evidence or back it up and you can still find something praiseworthy um, about how they tried that answer. And it could even be just a few things as they talk about the thinking that are just off. So there could be something very productive about the wrong answer. The wrong answer is wonderful in a thinking mind. Yeah. You can go somewhere with the wrong answer, you know, 
Um, this is the same thing with anything. Whether you go back to relationships with spouses or people, it's like, well, I'm going to try this. Uh, did that work? No, but it's a step closer to what will work. I think the thing that, you know, kills any ecosystem relationships is, is doing nothing. Hmm. And I think, you know, the couple of things we talk about in education is kids are building schema. Schema is just a fancy word for you're building like buckets and structure in your mind to start filing everything. You know, I would oftentimes have kids make predictions and that gets ownership too. You know, mm. I have a prediction, write a prediction where we're going to watch a film clip of somebody making a speech. What do you, where, what, what's his next topic? Where do you think he's going with this? And even if they get the answer wrong, they've developed a part of their brain that is ready to receive what it is. And they're always going to remember they were wrong. Right. You know, it's like, you mm-hmm. know, no, wrong to it. But yes, you said it right. Um, but, you know, um, but, uh, you know, they're always going to remember, you know what? I thought he was going to zig this way. And boy, twist, he's that. And then they remember that. That's creating ownership. That's creating. So um, I, I do think it is difficult, obviously, in, in a church setting. Um, you know, you might have a visitor that's there for one time. And if, if all you give them is what the person said next to them, that's the wrong interpretation. They leave and they say, boy, church X believes this, you know, I guess, you know, if I were you know, responsible for a flock, maybe I think about those things, but I think there's a balance of, you know, what do you think? What do you catch? You mull that over or talk it out with somebody else. Here's what current scholarship says, or here's what I noticed. Mm. This is what I stand for as the pastor of your church. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot to think of, and that will have lots of things to mull over. I mean, you're right that it, it's scarier. Um, it's interesting that you use the terms like, well, the wrong answer, the right answer. You know, I do think so much of church and education is, you know, get them to the right answer. Get them to the right script. It's, it's a very, scripted answer. Too. It's very binary thinking. Yes, yes, yeah. Like, you know, either it's got to be this phrase or not. Right. And again, that gets to a certain level of thinking, a certain level of questions that are very basic because getting to anything complicated, the answer is not going to be binary or simple. Do you think that starting point as far as education also connects to a right and wrong answer within spirituality and faith? Sure. Um, I, politics, you name it. Uh, I, I've been incentivized to find what the right answer is. Um, and, uh, and it's only one right answer. And, you know, we use tangent here. We use multiple choice assessments in the project I'm working on, but they're not, hey, which of the following is the correct treaty or the correct this? It really is, you see a primary source document from a period in history, you have to apply what you know. Um, But older multiple choice is very much, you know, you will be an A student if you can eliminate the wrong answers and find the right answer. You will not get chastised by your teacher if you give the right answer. Mm. Um, And... If you have a relationship with your teacher, all growing up K through 12, they're the answer person. My job is to take their answers, believe their answers, know their answers, and say their answers. 
Um, should we be shocked when we see people do that in their faith and not question anything? Um, or be shocked when people do that with politics? Well, I'm a this party or that party. I watch this network for my answers. So I'm programmed that when somebody asks me this, the answer is such and such. Um, yeah, we have had, if you've had 13 years of incentivizing your job is to memorize the right answers unquestionably from the fount of knowledge, then that leads to all sorts of bad outcomes. And again, you know, it, it does not prepare you for relationships. It does not prepare you for human beings or human interactions. We're messy, these humans, you know. Um, these multiple choice answers that are so pat, they're not useful for anything and they probably should have never existed in the first place. it does lead to an oversimplification, a reductive thinking of just find the right thing and stick with it. Um, and never talking about how do we know it's the right thing or what are the implications if that's the right thing. Um, all the sort of things that really get to application, whether that be your history, your politics, or your theology. Have you ever experienced uh, a scenario or a, uh, a church environment where you've shared some of these thoughts and had any pushback yeah i think that is on me in that i I go to lunch sometimes with pastors very occasionally and i think that's something that you know is probably on me not to be a a bystander Uh, you know i don't know how much they'd be interested in in, in my thoughts on this one way or the other but you know I, i i i'm not sure how much i've shared i'm not sure i've shared enough on that front to get pushback. And I think, I think something important to empathize with everybody um, is there are no bad guys here. Uh, you know, I don't think a teacher that's just lecturing five days a week or a pastor that's just having content delivery sermons are, boo, they do it terribly. You know, I think we feel that way with teachers. We, often, we all remember... Um, the teacher we just couldn't stand or the multiple teachers we couldn't stand. Um, and we think about that quite a bit or the pastor we didn't like. Um, but if they don't know any better and nobody's presented any alternatives uh, or somebody has thoughts about it and they're just keeping to themselves and just answering questions on a podcast but haven't done anything more productive with them, uh, for example, um, you know, all these come from someplace. You know, this is this is how things get done. And and I don't think they have been questioned much in the training at seminary or at a uh, school of ed, you know, teacher training or teacher training's not very good in, in a lot of respects. Um, so, you know, I, I think I'm not sure I would always get pushback because I think oftentimes, at least in the education, we want to have these kind of conversations and say, um, have you ever thought about such and such usually response is well that'd be great but how you know and how can i make it work and still do all these other things i'm supposed to do my endless list of teacher duties so it's not a lack of willingness and it's it's not typically a pushback it's really just a lack of exposure a lack of knowing practically how to do it and get the job done. Still have a sermon ready every, you know, 45 minutes. 
try making a 45 minute speech. How many, how many people listening to this podcast have made a 45 minute speech to more than 20 people? You know, you do that once and realize how much time it takes to prepare for a bad one of those. Right. You know, let alone a good one. Um, so this is, this is not easy stuff. Um, do you think it's sort of like the Emperor's New Clothes where if one person kind of points it out, then everyone will start to recognize maybe there's a flaw in the system? I don't know how much you edit out of dramatic, thoughtful pauses. Um, this one I'll probably leave in. Oh, really? Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think it's as simple as... You mentioned binary, so I'm going to turn the tables on the host. Sure. That's binary right there. Okay. Um, there is something, I like to always start with the assumption that there's something really worthwhile that somebody's already doing. And there are unhidden corners of potential within what they're already doing. And there are new ways. And, and I'm going to maybe, you know, in the education world, maybe bring them some new ideas that will fuel some cool thinking. But then they're going to they're turn a corner and show me leaves of how to apply that um, because if I really, if I'm really practicing what I preach in, there can't just be, here's the right answer. It's not as simple as this is the right way to teach. You know, you, you're either doing the wrong way of teach. Here's the right way to teach and teach it this way all the time. Um, I, I always tell teachers, you're the expert of your kids. I'm, I'm in New Jersey in my office in New York city. What, what do I know about where you teach and your kids and what they're going through? So I think I would reject the, the emperor has just been wearing no clothes all along. I would say they're doing something worthwhile and they have passions. I think they actually are, are tired and frustrated. Um, I think I just mentioned about how much work does it take to think of a 45 minute speech? I think they might find it refreshing. What if it's a 30 minute speech with 15 minutes of really interested, invested time in people talking to their neighbor or writing down something themselves or um, having spots to think. You might actually have a, both a more effective sermon and have to not work as hard to get it. That's a win for everybody. So I, I assume there are skills that a, a pastor has, a passion, a conviction. Um, you want to get into spiritual gifts? Sure. Um, in the teaching role, I feel that way as well. Part of it is, is adapting what they do to address principles of how do you lead students to set them up for perfect moments of discovery? How do you set students up for ownership? But the flavor, the method, that's going to be them. There's got to be some part of them in that. So I'm not there to dismantle, see what I did there. Nice, um, nice their whole way of doing things, I'd like to start with the assumption that they're already doing something pretty cool. Um, and at worst, it's just buried beneath a lot of habits that they don't know are ineffective or don't have time to address. Um, I could be wrong. Sometimes they're just not a very good whatever that is. But I, I'm right more often than I'm wrong. So why not just assume the best and start you know, that affects, uh, you know, one of my favorite radio ad jokes. And I couldn't even tell you what the products were before. But somebody in the radio ad said, people say I'm condescending. That means I talk down to people. <laughs> 
it was such a great one-off punchline. Yeah. Um, people who are pastors, people who are teachers, terrible, heartbreaking. Time Magazine article about how poorly paid teachers are in so many corners of the country. These are people that are doing their very best mm. under really trying circumstances. Society asks more and more for them, and in lots of cases, their comparative pay is getting less and less. And if I'm going to come in there and say that I have anything to help them with, um, it can't be, I'm helping you. I'm the smart guy with the right way to do things. It's really got to be completely a language of partnership, not just dressed up in fancy phrases I've memorized for myself. It's got to be on a heart level. And I got to also go in with the expectation that I'm going to learn something because um, otherwise, you know, good. the best teachers have to be learners. The best pastors have to be learners. Um, so I don't know, that was a diatribe, but you're, apparently you're, you're, uh, your image of the a naked emperor really set something off in me. But yeah, I think it is operating within the system. I think that's a redemptive, respectful, and more effective way to look at changing the system and changing the real people and their practices that are operating within the system. And the system, they didn't pick in lots of cases. Right. Yeah, they've inherited um, a style of teaching. They've inherited those classrooms where all the desks weigh 80 right. pounds and stare at the screen that was poorly installed. Um, you know, so, so that empathy always has to be first. Hmm. That's great insight. Thank you. Uh, and this might open up a can of worms, uh, but how does the church come alongside this effort, whether it's classic education or, or, or even just sermon giving? How does the church then step into uh, some of these areas where we can either improve and facilitate the discovery uh, and just really create an information education system that becomes personal. My first thought is be like Jesus. And that doesn't mean what you think it means sometimes, church. <laughs> um, I cited lots of examples where Jesus was okay with not having perfect closure at the end of his talk. It was okay with complicated things that had multiple meanings. It was okay with being coy. And I will speak on what I feel I have more experience and more useful perspective to give on, and that is education. And I think the church in the United States and people who call themselves the label Christian, evangelical, whatever stripe they want to call themselves, are oftentimes in the forefront of shutting down interesting education. Hmm. <laughs> and, you know, they, they, they want the right answer. They are obsessed with the right answer. Uh, you know, and by the way, spoiler alert, if you're ever in a Sunday school, kids, and the teacher has asked a question and pauses a long time, just say Jesus. You're going to be right 70% of the time. So, so there you have that in your pocket right there. Um, and, and listen, that's appropriate for when you're, you're teaching you know, kids that are, are my kid's age of three or four or something like that. But the fact that schools we label Christian or what we hate the most about public schools oftentimes is not something that I see as being consistent with Jesus's 
desire to have ministry, whether it be Christian entertainment, Christian education. They're obsessed with, this is the correct answer to memorize. This is the meaning you should have gotten at the end of the Christian film. This is the exact thing that Jesus meant when he said that, says the notes in my study Bible, and you're done. You've got this note in the study Bible. You don't need to look anywhere else for any other perspectives. You're done. You know, I think so much of Christian everything wants to get to the place where they are done. And the Bible I see says we're, we're never done. We're always in a process of transformation. The moment we're, we're, we feel the most done, that means we're on the precipice of having our mind blown. So, so many of the trends I see in some Christian education you know, oftentimes it's even about how to, here's how to deal with the secular world. When the secular world says this, your answer is this, this, and this. Well, you know what? The secular world might not ever really say that, or definitely in those terms. Or why don't you just go get to know somebody from the secular world? Um, and why don't you think about general ideas of what you might want to say to them or what the Bible actually says about it? But I think. You know, a lot of the Christian education I have seen has been all about so many Christian schools just think, here's how you make a Christian school. In addition to having all the content answers memorized, here are all the Christian answers you need to memorize as well. And we just develop students from those that have their intellectual life stunted in more ways. Uh, by the addition of that, not uh, a well-rounded faith-based individual that will be transformative, that will be able to engage in the world outside of their Christian school. So I just, I, I do see, you know, just in general, um, a sense of a formula. And again, in Christian entertainment as well, you know, like every, every supposed Christian film I've seen, uh, it's all wrapped up at the end. Uh, it's all perfectly tied together. It's somebody might as well just turn her to the camera like Mr. Rogers and say, kids, what did we learn today? We learned this. That Jesus solves everything. Yes. Um, and Jesus doesn't solve everything because that's not how Jesus taught. So teach like Jesus teaches. Church, in your church, in your school. Be okay when your secular institution teaches is a lot more like Jesus than you might think at first blush. Uh, and don't fight that. Yeah, and this is not to say that people who take the Christian faith very seriously have nothing to be concerned about in the public school. You know, if you have made a decision to homeschool your kids or to do Christian education, hey, as long as, you know, that's, that's your decision. And, and you, again, you're the expert of your situation. How would I know? Um, but when I see an aggregate, the church as a whole, just being standing for pat answers and memorization and formula, um, that's, that's not the gospel I see Jesus advocating. It's a great word, man. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for being on the show as we uh, kind of wrap it up. 
Uh, is there anything that you'd want to say to a church, to your church, or just church culture that would help us move in a positive direction? It can be on the topic that we're talking about right now or just something that's on your heart. Well, that could be 80 things or zero, Joey. Is this the, is this the question you leave people with every single podcast? I've only listened to two or three. It is the question. Man, you need, you need something more like um, James Lipton, like the, in, the Inside Actors Studio where it's like a – fun you ever see that yeah 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. this isn't a fun and, show and if if peter were greets you at the gates of heaven what will you say you know, um <laughs> whatever he said um here's what i would say those of us who are in public education we can be your partners and don't could you approach us in the same way that I talked about approaching the educators, I interact with that, assuming that there is probably something we can agree on instead of this monolithic, well, they're from the public school and they probably vote a certain way or their uh, union meetings tell them to do this or that. I just can't say how many times I've heard people talk about public school, all public school, everywhere, every school in America, um, in a certain way that just isn't um, true. Uh, mm. And yeah, this isn't related, but, uh, you know, it's interesting, prayer in school. Um, yeah, a lot of Christians like the idea of prayer in school until you tell them the prayer is not going to be a Christian prayer. You know, I lived in a, a neighborhood of Edison, New Jersey. If we said, you get a prayer in school, whatever the majority religion of that community is, we're going to have that type of prayer. Well, then my, my kid is going to you know, learn something from the Vedas and some sort of Hindi ritual probably. Right, it's not the Judeo-Christian. No, no. So, I mean, that's just one example of, I think, certain things that I think oftentimes, whether it be in media or whatever, we're kind of in a hurry to make the secular this the bad guy and again let's memorize our answer about what the outside world is rather than going and seeing what's actually out there than you know itself um and that that never never really deepened the faith of anybody that i know about um so that would be something helpful to stop (laughs) yeah uh, what's something from culture that you're really digging? Maybe it's a book or a Netflix show or something like that. I think one of the best ways to get out of the what's the perfect answer mindset, and if you just want some, a fun, very readable series of books, um, do you ever read Malcolm Gladwell? To oh, yeah. Point? Uh, I think for the person that's not into that, or if you find yourself, wow, what would education be except memorizing answers? or what would be something to work out the parts of my brain to think of something that's non-intuitive or to hold two separate ideas at once? Um, all of Malcolm Gladwell's books are really interesting and readable. And they talk about, you know, one book's even just called Outliers. But that, that's a good example of the type of education I'm talking about where we'll take an example. And, you know, I think even how Malcolm Gladwell teaches mm-hmm. in his books is... Very much so. Here's a story that you think you know, that you think you know, or <laughs> here's something and the blah, blah, blah. And, and even before he's gotten to the point, you know, here I go, wow, wow, 
I would have, I've already learned something interesting. And then yeah. he expands upon that. Um, he begins like 70% of his chapters that way. And so I think there's a lot of the spirit of that that I see in the way that I approach education. I'll link his uh, podcast, Revisionist History on uh, on the show notes and, and also i just finished his book david and goliath it's phenomenal of of what you think you understand about certain things and uh how he very graciously and humbly at the same time uh, allows you to have your own discovery while he presents new information yeah and i think that it's interesting I mean, you saying that what is the american church so scared of hmm. A learner should be excited about the possibility of learning a new wrinkle and finding a new perspective. And the scriptures I read use phrases like the renewing of your mind, not the cosmetic nose job on your mind or a nice you know, coat of fresh paint renewal like a completely new plant coming in and Not the preconceived reaffirmation so much of a mindset that's not about growth and learning is about fear i'm gonna lose something i'm gonna lose a tradition i'm gonna lose something precious i gotta defend something i know i'm right i don't even have evidence i know the right answer this is the one i'm supposed to memorize i did it and i'm not moving off of it a real learner and a real enthusiastic embracing of the teachings of Jesus from what I see is excited about the possibility of having your world rock and excited about seeing everything through a new lens. And I'm completely not religious, even though he uses David Goliath as an example, um, work, Malcolm Gladwell works really well, the exhilarating process of whoa, I had everything backwards. Hmm. We should always be open to that. I can't remember any time Jesus said, commanded his disciples. So here's the answer in all cases, and close yourself off from any other possibility. In fact, he very clearly says, you heard it this way. Yep. I'm telling you this. Right, right, right. Um, and yeah, Malcolm Gladwell is definitely informed by parables. I mean, he almost uses real life stories as the parable for first. For sure. I'm not, I'm not sure he's a Christian uh, or, or professes any faith, but he's definitely educated yes. within a, a Christian mindset. So I, I think, you know, if you're not into Gladwell, um, you know, I, I would say, did you listen to his, you said you listened to his podcast. Mm -hmm. His voice is an acquired taste for some people. So if you, it is. If you, if you like, if yeah. you, you call Dallas podcast. You're like, I just something about the the uh, the vocal qualities of this. Uh, you pick up. I listened to I listened to his podcast like straight through, and then I picked up his book, and I can't get his voice out of my head as I read it now. <laughs> so it's uh, it's just ingrained in there. But Drew, thank you so much for being on the show. I really had my mind expanded through our conversation. Well, thank you. Thank you. That wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. We'd like to hear your thoughts on the topic discussed today, maybe your experience and ways we can continue to create community. Visit the website at dismantlepod.com. And until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle. 
creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com. <laughs>